Hello, deserving listeners. So I want to talk about the documentary Wild Wild Country, in which the documentary talks about the Rajneesh commune or cult. We'll, de- we'll get into that debate, uh, that uh, whether or not it was a commune or cult. And it was in Oregon. But I have a little intro I want to talk about. I love astronomy, and when the eclipse was happening in the United States, it was traversing all the way across the United States last year. Uh, a few years ago, I, I knew about it and planned for it, and I found that the best place to see the eclipse was in central Oregon because the weather was supposed to be good and it was going to be, you know, one of the longest eclipses from that location and, you know, it was going to be right in the path. And since Oregon is just south of Seattle, I, I made my plans and went to the town of Madras, which is right near Antelope. And during the day, I went to this diner because I wanted to, you know, get some food. And there were some locals in there. It was all filled with locals, just, I don't know, like five or ten locals. And as I walked in and other people from other nationalities and other, you know, non-white people were walking in, the locals were looking at all of us with, you know, a very sideways glance. And even one guy was saying like, oh, you know, the stupid eclipse people are here. And, and I, I just thought like, man, you know, these small town people, because Madras and Antelope in central Oregon, these are extremely small towns. We're talking like, I think Antelope you know, back in the, in the 80s had like 50 people. And I, I'm guessing Madras probably just has like, I don't know, a couple hundred people or something. I don't maybe a thousand. I don't know, but very small town. And I just, I just thought, oh, that's really unfortunate that these people in the small town have this anti, you know, uh, attitude towards outsiders. <laughs> uh, incidentally, one of the uh, people who were more vocal of, as an anti-outsider sort of guy um, ended up randomly accidentally sitting next to this Chinese couple who uh, they, I mean, as an Asian American, I have to say they looked very quintessential, very stereotypical. They had, they had cameras and blah, blah, blah. And they struck up a conversation and the, the local guy who was this, you know, he looked like a rough and tumble farmer kind of guy. He struck up a conversation with them and they were talking about cameras. And so he was a nice guy. But anyway, the point is, is I made note of that. And then I come back home and I learn about this Netflix documentary called Wild Wild Country and people on the, on the podcast are emailing me and say, you got to watch this documentary. And I'd heard about this story about the Rajneeshas in Oregon before. And I, I can't remember what podcast I was listening to. It might have been This American Life or Radio Lab or something. And I remember hearing about it and thinking it was kind of a weird story. And I thought, well, I don't know. I kind of already know the story. But I sat down to watch the documentary and I was completely gripped. And I started watching other documentaries about it, you know, because the documentary on Netflix has a particular take on the story. And so I started looking into it. It's just a fascinating story. And I thought back to those locals in that diner in Madras, Oregon, and how anti-outsiders they were. And it all kind of made sense because when you watch this documentary and the history of what outsiders did you know, the, the, the most outsidery outsiders that have ever outsided on into rural America just completely, if you know the story, infiltrated and did all sorts of like just you couldn't if you wrote a movie plot with this storyline, you'd be like, come on, that's ridiculous. I mean, the, the twists and turns in this story legally, uh, violence, uh, you know, terrorism, essentially bioterrorism. Poisoning. 
yeah, poisoning and and just how bizarre the whole thing is. The outfits and the the police force with the automatic weapons. I mean, it is just a fascinating story. And so I thought, well, I think it makes sense that the guys in the diner were a little skeptical of a, a whole because there were thousands of people descending on Madras to, to mm-hmm. see the eclipse, you know, because everyone knew around the world it was the best place to see the eclipse from. And so it all kind of made sense. And, um, and I brought on two intelligent people who know everything about cults and a lot of other topics to talk about this documentary and the Rajneeshas in general to answer the question, was this a cult? What was the deal with these people? You know, what what uh, was it like to be in this organization? Uh, this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Hanna. I'm a therapist and a professor. Uh, John, can you introduce yourself? Uh, people have, you know, people know you as a regular guest on the podcast, but can you please reintroduce yourself? Sure, yeah. Uh, my name is John Atak, and uh, I'm the director of projects at the Open Minds Foundation, where we seek to provide an education about undue influence and manipulation to help people to avoid becoming involved with um, dangerous and toxic groups and relationships. Um, on the point of eclipses, just as a sidebar, um, I highly recommend Annie Dillard's um, short story, Total Eclipse, which is a wonderful description of a total eclipse. So there you go. That's, uh, that's me. And there are, by the way, seven or eight things I don't know about cults, but no. <laughs> Not quite everything. Yeah. <laughs> Yuval, please introduce yourself back to the listeners. Uh, hello, I'm uh, Yuval Laor. I've also recorded a, a couple, a few times with you. So someone might be familiar with me. I have a, um, a PhD in culture studies that I wrote about the evolution of the capacity for fervor. And I do have a background in evolutionary theory a little bit and some other uh, uh, fields, but I come to uh, cultic studies or cultic, uh, the, the, the world of cults from a somewhat different angle than, than, than others. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully I'll have something to say about uh, this crazy cult. So yeah, I wanted to do a podcast about Wild Wild Country. And so I reached out to the two of you because I thought that you would have some awesome things to say about it. Had you seen the podcast or the uh, documentary before I reached out to you? Yeah, I have. I, I mean, I saw one came out. Yeah, and I, I hadn't. And, and you emailed me and you said, well, you, you probably don't have to watch it because I sadly do know a fair amount about the Rajneeshis. Um, and uh, Yuval had, had actually said, oh, this probably isn't for you, John, because it doesn't ask answer the questions that, that I ask, which is, you know, how does somebody become involved? Why do they stay involved? How do they leave? How do they recover? That's what I would like to see in documentaries about so-called cult groups and it's almost never touched on you just get what people's experiences were but I thought well I'll, I'll go and watch the first part of it and, and just like you Kirk I was completely gripped it is so beautifully produced I mean I, I do have some criticisms which we'll get to but it it was it, it was mesmerizing from first to last I thought to hear these people's stories it's a shame the stories we only heard the stories of the aristocrats of the movement of the generals we didn't hear about the slaves we didn't hear about the you know the grunts and the the, the sort of lives they had so i think the problem is it may have made it seem attractive to some people um 
but it was a thing it was only attractive if you were right at the top you know interesting yeah so in case you're not familiar with this group just a very it's a very twisty turny story but in a in a nutshell you have this guy in india who is a guru in the i believe the 70s maybe the 60s early back we'll just call him osho he goes by a number of different names but osho is the the nickname he goes by and he has a following in india and he kind of breaks away from some of the other guru notions in that he embraces capitalism you know a lot of the gurus who say you have to give away all your possessions and this this osho guru is like you know had all this had a lot of the similar belief systems as as other gurus in india but also in, totally embraced uh, capitalism and said you don't have to give up your possessions you can actually be wealthy if you want to be and that's fine you know it, it can't be the focus of your life but it's it's okay and so he has these different uh, followers. People start to flock to him in India. There's some shady business that goes on in India with the law. Uh, again, long story short, he ends up uh, looking to uh, leave India and build a, a commune or a, a compound in the United States. And they, him and his people, his, his, uh, his organization, decide that to have it in central Oregon because it's so remote. And they figure that they that the Rajneeshis or the people that follow Osho can actually dictate their terms if they go to somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And so they go to the middle of nowhere in central Oregon and instantly they start to clash with the locals who, uh, you know, uh, you know, have some bigoted attitudes about the Rajneeshis. And it should be said that a, a lot of the followers were American and educated Americans or educated Westerners. That they were often called the PhD cult for that yeah. reason. Yeah. And a lot of them actually were psychologists, interestingly, like something like yeah. 10% of the organization for, you know, in the first period of time were psychologists mm -hmm. and there were engineers and computer people and, you know, agriculture people and stuff. And, uh, but the locals had, you know, a lot of suspicion about them. And, uh, and then there was this clashing between like coding cause the, the, the commune wanted to build more and more buildings. And so the locals, there were sort of, there were laws and codes on the books that prevented people well, from, from they, doing such things. They'd arrived and, and said they were there to farm. They hadn't right. said anything about building a, a town that would house 10,000 people on the doorstep of this retirement community that, you know, as you said before, there are only 40 people in Antelope when the Rajneeshis arrived. So they, you know, they'd gone there for a nice quiet retirement and they suddenly got these people all over them who are building houses with no permits at all. Right. And right from the beginning, just a lot of shadiness on behalf of the Rajneesh people. And as the tensions escalated, the locals started taking greater political action, which started to involve not only the city of Antelope, but also the county and then later the state and later the nation, later the world. It became like a world sensation in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And the Rajneeshis resorted to a lot of shady uh, activity, particularly the leadership, um, you know, just one, one, one highlight in terms of the shadiness that they did is they they tried to po they did poison the locals in with salmonella by by spreading salmonella all over these um, 
uh, salad bars as an attempt to prevent them from voting because they were a big vote was coming up. Um, and also just kind of like a revenge, just trying to like get back at the people in some ways. And that's just one of the things that these, you know, peace loving new agey, uh, Rajneesh just did. They also involved themselves in the media a lot and they were very hostile and they had, they, they started to uh, arm themselves and it was just a very sensational thing. And then eventually it culminated in Osho being uh, deported by the federal government, I believe. And then things kind of fell apart from there. So that, but that doesn't give the story justice. It's a very interesting story that I reckon there's even like YouTube 20 minute documentaries that are fascinating because a big part of it is seeing you have to have see the visuals of this commune and the people and the things that they do, uh, which was very similar to other new age communes of the time. Lots of uh, encounter groups kind of things where people are screaming, you know, with their emotions, primal screaming uh, the seventies and the sixties. And I guess the eighties, there was a practice in humanistic psychology, a very small subset where people would get together and scream. And also they had a very liberal sexual policy and uh, were termed as a sex cult by society. But anyway, so that's it in a nutshell. But I want to know from the two of you, John and Yuval, what did you, uh, no, let me ask you this first question because I'm sure the listeners are curious. Was this group a cult and by what definition do we look to to define whether or not something's a cult or not? Well, I think we can maybe just move the word aside. By dictionary definition, a, a cult is a group that follows a, a leader or a doctrine. That's it. That it, it came during the 60s and 70s to have a pejorative negative meaning. So when I started, you know, with this work, we were very careful to talk about destructive or dangerous cults. You know, the, the, so the loading was in the adjective, not in the noun. Now, academics uh, are arguing that we shouldn't use the word cult and we should call them new religious movements. Now, that's new in the sense of something that happened since 1830, when the Latter-day Saints were formed to a, apparently the first new religious movement. So anything since 1830 is new. Religious in the sense that they believe something because... Groups like Est and the Sullivanians, therapy cults, commercial cults, are all lumped in. cults too, prosperity cults. Yeah. They become religious too, according to this sociological definition. And movements, and of course, things like the Manson family get thrown in, and they were, you could hardly call them a movement. You know? <laughs> the the sannyasins, the, the, uh, uh, they, they fit every definition of cult. Also, the destructive yeah. cults, they fit the, the if you... I think that the, you'll be hard-pressed to find the definition of cult that they will not fit into because even the ones that are very pejorative and that assume that they're horrible because they were a horrible cult. So, John, are you saying that the original definition of cult was more open to lots of different kinds of organizations, but then... Yeah, it's about the devotion to the, to the leader, because I've heard, I've heard people have definitions of cults that I'm, I'm guessing, according to you, you would call destructive cults. Yeah, yeah. well, we differentiated. I mean, um, Jolly West brought forward a, a definition of a totalist cult. I have in front of me uh, the Oxford English Dictionary, 
because I always keep one on my knee just in case. And uh, it says cult, uh, which is a substantive, a noun, uh, which means worship since 1683, a particular form of religious worship, especially in reference to its external rites and ceremonies, 1679. It was then transferred to devotion to a particular person or thing. Um, and that has been the definition since 1711. They add nothing here about it being nasty or horrible. Those are inferences that have been drawn by the groups who've been called cults um, and by academics who are trying not to tread on their toes. Those same academics will, will call somebody like me an apostate, though, so they don't mind insulting you know, those of us who've left a group. Um, but, but they're very cautious about the feelings of people who are involved in these groups. And that's understandable. We don't want to upset anybody. But well, we, John, are there examples of cults, according to that definition, that are not destructive? And Well, there's cult movies. There's people who really love the Rocky Horror Picture Show. They love cult. That's cult movie, right? Yeah. And, and there are, of course, any uh, religious or political group that, you know, communists are the cult of Marx uh, without making any you know, statement about... Or, or Mao or Lenin sometimes. Well, I'd, I'd rather not bring them into it because <laughs> with Mao and Lenin, you can say that those are destructive cults, no doubt. With Karl Marx, some of what he's saying, like equality for women, for example, it, they're very good ideas. Uh, I hasten to add, I'm not a Marxist. <laughs> I am not now, nor have I ever been a member <laughs> of the Communist Party. Um, but th there are, you know, by that definition... Somebody who really likes uh, soccer can be in the cult of Nottingham Forest, my local team. And they do have three or four cult members. It, it's anything that people become um, enthusiastic about and caught up in. Yeah, well, I, so, yeah, I guess I'm a part of probably 55 cults, according to that definition. Yeah, at least. So, yeah, Star um, Wars, Huskies, Seahawks. Uh, I, I don't want to know this. This is just too much information. <laughs> <laughs> so what, so what are the, what's the definition of a destructive cult? Well, I've, total actually, here I am. This is, I, I mentioned uh, Jolly West. Um, I've been told off for mentioning my friendship with him before because people say he was involved in all sorts of conspiracies with the CIA and things, but that's certainly not a side of him that I knew. Um, but you anyway, have, you have Singer's definition over there. I, well, I've, I've got I've got Jolly's. Will that do? Okay. I've got a group or movement exhibiting a great or excessive devotion or dedication to some person, idea, or thing, and employing unethical manipulative or coercive techniques of persuasion and control designed to advance the goals of the group's leaders to the possible or actual detriment of members, their families, or the community. Pretty good, eh? Yeah. And, yep. uh, so let's answer the question that way. Whether Ajneesh is uh, a totalist cult? Yes. That was it. It was a long way to, to get to, but the answer is yes. So, what harm? I mean, I you know I can answer that question too, but you're better at answering these questions. What harm did they do to its members and the community? Well, the reason that they were thrown out of Pune, and and I'm a little critical of Wild Wild Country here. They show you just one clip from a documentary that was filmed at Pune in India when they were still there. Now they had these. Uh, these techniques of liberation um, 
where you would be basically put in a room, told to take your clothes off, and I and have sex with the people in the room. Now, that as a therapist, you probably know that that can be quite dangerous for people um, psychologically. But they also had an exercise where they fill a room with people and tell them to hit each other. And it is said that the reason that I've been told that the reason they were thrown out of Pune was because the local hospital was reporting them to the government authorities saying we're getting all of these people with broken bones. So it's a very direct and immediate harm that, that occurred. Also financial form. harm, of course. Yeah, people would, oddly enough, give all their money. And his Osho is well known for the, the count of, of Rolls Royces he had. Um, a hundred, according to some reports, a hundred Rolls Royces. Yeah, I've seen 86, um, 92. And the problem was that whenever he drove one of them, he would crash it because his eyesight, you know, because he was living in a different spiritual world to us. His eyesight was not very good in this universe. He might have been uh, on some drugs as well. He he was on some drugs. And he was, it, yes, he was. I, I read a 300-page book about the Rajneeshis written by his bodyguard. Very good book. But he could have told me on the first page, he buried the lead. He gets to the very end of the book. He's his bodyguard. He's with him every day. G- and give the name of the book. I, I don't remember oh, it offhand. Okay. I went so looking for it earlier. You've <laughs> now shamed me in front of an audience of millions. Um, that, see, that's one of the seven or eight things I don't know about cults. Um, he um, basically had thrown them into this this situation where they were harming and damaging each other, yes. But at the, the end of the book, this guy says, oh, and he was taking 50 milligrams of diazepam, Valium, a day, which is a massive dose of Valium. It's given out in two and five milligram doses. Yeah, 50, that's a lot. Yeah, one or two hits of nitrous oxide. That is kind of confirmed sideways, though they don't explain it in Wild Wild Country. When Maranan Sheila, who ran all of the dirty operations and went to prison for three and a half years for it, she says, we were trying to get his doctor out of the way, and they in fact tried to kill the doctor, and there was a trial about that later where um, what she's called Ma Shanti B. Um, she actually injected him with something in the attempt to kill him um, because, Ma Nanshila says, he was giving drugs to the Bhagwan. Um, so, yeah, this was a guy who was high. And when you, when you look at him wandering out, you know, going namaste to people with these big brown eyes, you know, floating in pools of diazepam. It, it's sort of, he's blissed out and he's blissed out because he is tranked out of his head. Yeah, I've, I've taken, I took uh, 10 milligrams of diazepam for a, um, for a party once. No, just joking. For a, <laughs> uh, a, a, a surgery on my mouth. Yeah. And I, there was nothing that could possibly bother me. I, I'm terrified of, of uh, drills and, you know, surgery while I'm awake. <laughs> and yeah. they had to uh, drill into my jaw with a drill, like a, you know, an actual, the kind of drill you would, you know, it's a, it's a medical <laughs> drill, but it looks like a drill you would use to like hang a picture on your wall. Looks like a road drill. Yeah. And, repeatedly drilling into my 
job because each drill bit had to be progressively yeah, bigger yeah. and bigger. I, let's get through to the drugs. This is starting to, you know, <laughs> we're all getting toothache out here. Right. And I'm completely wide awake, but I'm on 10 milligrams of Valium and no problem. Like yeah. total chill. This was like an hour long pr- uh, procedure <laughs> and I was so chill. I was like, not a problem, dude. Not a problem. Multiply that by five, but then you add nitrous oxide. Now, nitrous oxide is, uh, Ron Hubbard began his career with a hit of nitrous oxide, where he reckoned he died for eight minutes during a dental operation. I must say, he didn't go into quite as much graphic detail about the operation as you did, but (laughs) that was the beginning of Scientology. He would say, you know, in February 1938, he had his wisdom teeth extracted. Nitrous oxide, William James has a chapter in Varieties of Religious Experience, a wonderful chapter about the nitrous oxide clubs of the late 19th century, where these intellectuals would go and take laughing gas and just trip out. You know, the intense hallucinations, spiritual visions, all sorts of things going on. So it's interesting. You know, it's just one of those other little strange little connections between the the um, totalist cult gurus. Interesting. So uh, they harm the community, obviously, because they poison the community on several occasions and threaten the community and tried to take over the politics of the community, try to run them out of town. And brought bust in about 3,000 homeless people. Right. And, and then just dumped them on the street at gunpoint <laughs> out of here <laughs> and and drugged them while yeah, they were yeah. at the yeah. at the uh, well they, they drugged any, anybody that was a problem they were drug drug with uh haloperidol which is yeah, haloperidol yeah. yeah which is not a nice thing to do so sheila is a prominent figure if you don't know the story she was the osho's right hand woman mm-hmm. and was she joined him when she was 16 yeah, and a dedicated person, and and mainly, and she was the figurehead and the the primary speaker for. Yeah, well, the he, he stopped. He stopped speaking for three years, so so she did it all for him. Right, he stopped speaking even to the commune people. Yeah, uh, he, we, he probably was still speaking to Maren and Sheila, but I think he was going. No, I think I'll just take some more Valium and another hit. You guys yeah. can get on with it. Oh, I'm going to drive one of my Rolls Royces into a wall. Yeah. And that was the life he lived. It just seems so boring, honestly. Yeah, exactly. With with all of them, that they, these kind of narcissistic people who they're holy, and you know a lot more about this than I do, Kurt, but, um, you know, from your study of of narcissistic personality disorder and and having treated people who who have this, this thing, but they, they have no self. They, 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 you know, Freud reckoned that it's because they don't love anyone but themselves, but they don't love themselves. But, you know, so to exist, they have to have adulation from the outside. And then they just sit back into that. And, you know, Hubbard became hyperactive and and never stopped. And then, well, he did stop, actually. He'd have collapses of weeks on end. But but he was really push at things. Osho seems to have just withdrawn and, you know, become disinterested. I'd also like to say... His background is very interesting. He had a master's degree in philosophy, uh, which was awarded with distinction. That gave him very briefly a professorship in philosophy. So, you know, he has an interesting psychological background. And he's piecing together 
the flotsam and jetsam of Hinduism and Buddhism and Christianity into something that, as you say, was convincing to the 10% of his followers who were psychologists. Right. So it makes you wonder. Quite a, got quite a spiel going on there. Yeah, it, makes you, it made me wonder, based on his background, he is an educated man, he's in academia, and then Briefly. He, he starts to, uh, you know, he creates this this thing and there there was a lot of that happening at the time in the 60s and 70s there were a lot of westerners you know running to the beatles in, yeah the beatles yeah. and famously and others running to india but it, but it happened at that point when the beatles you know the zen and hinduism and buddhism things been coming in since the 50s through people like alan watts and aldous huxley but it slams mainstream when uh, you know the beatles meet sexy sadie Right. And called the Maharishi, the great teacher Mahesh. Yeah. And he had a degree in physics, by the way, Mahesh. (laughs) Yeah. You wonder about Osho's motivations. Was it true or was he knowingly manipulating people? You know? I'd just like to say to anybody listening who is still a follower of Rajneesh that Rajneesh said categorically, with a living master, everything works. With a dead master, nothing works. So that's my, my one line. Quit now, <laughs> according to the teacher himself. So, uh, I think Rajneesh Hubbard strikes me as both crank and charlatan. He was somebody who on Wednesdays believed everything he'd said and on Thursdays knew he was a fraud. And his whole time, I've said so many reports from so many people about that, I think Rajneesh knew he was a charlatan from the beginning. That, that's the, the feeling I get from him. But then you see, say, Prem Nairan, the lawyer, who still today is, when he starts talking about him, he tears up and he can't speak. He feels such love, such devotion to this man who didn't speak to anybody for three years and just nodded his head. You know? But wrote a number of books, or sometimes other people wrote the books for him, but... Uh, you, yeah, can, you can read a lot he, of by him. He, he produced a lot. There was a lot of literature coming out of that. Whether it's like Hubbard that he just sat around and talked and other people wrote it down and made it into books because I think there are 28 Scientology books that were published before I left. And 27 <laughs> of those weren't written by Hubbard. I later talked to the people who wrote some of them. Interesting. Um, but they're all from Hubbard's conversation or it, it, in the early days from his lectures, public lectures. By the 70s, they'd taken to having a tape recorder on all the time. He was, well, whether he was awake or asleep, you know, (laughs) there'd be a tape recorder in the room. So I met a guy in 1993 who his job had been to go through these thousands and thousands of hours of tapes and find anything that could be, you know, put into a little issue to send out. And, he said it was an impossible task. You know, he they hadn't even started on it, really, because they just assigned one guy to it, you know, transcribe all of these. Yeah, as a during my dissertation, I did a, uh, a, a qualitative study in which I interviewed people for about an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And I only conducted 10 of those interviews and I had to transcribe them and, and go over them. That's just you know, 10 or 15 hours of audio and that it was so much work. So I can't imagine going over hundreds of thousands of hours. Um, I just want to say from the onset that 
I, I have sympathy for the people who in you know enjoyed themselves or appreciated being in this commune or cults or whatever we want to call it. Uh, even Scientology, for example, low low level uh, entry level Scientology activity. Uh, can be quite meaningful. I, it could also be quite destructive. It, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that from the get-go, they're using guided imagination techniques, which can cause quite severe shifts in people. I have a friend who was involved for 11 months, and he I knew him when he was in, and he came back to me well, about seven years ago. So you know, I hadn't seen him for 30-something years. And um, we... He then told me that he'd done a drill that is done in the first course, what used to be always the first course back then called the communication course. It, it's an early drill. It's called bull baiting. And you've basically learned to sit and stare at somebody without moving. Then you've, sorry, to confront somebody that they really don't like it if you say stare. They like to say confront, you know. Um, you've then sat, you know, you sat with your eyes closed in front of somebody, then you sat and stared at them. And now you, the third drill in. So this could be within two hours of starting Scientology. He, you do this thing where you're not meant to react no matter what's said to you, called bull baiting, and people will be very rude, they'll be obscene, they'll be uh, comic, they'll do whatever they can to get a reaction. And they then have to repeat what gave you a reaction until you can just sit there stony-faced, and this is meant to help you later as a communicator and as a counsellor. Now, that drill did something to him that lasted for 30 years. So... I would have a certain caution about the application of any hypnotic technique, any form of guided imagination. What happened to him? What happened to him? Oh, what happened to him was that he he'd come to the group because he felt anxious. Uh, you know, he used to f- feel anxiety more than is 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 usually. He was I don't know about twenty years old, and um, his during a single session of of bull bait. Um, he felt this anxiety go away from him. You know, this wonderful, wonderful sense that the thing he'd come for, he'd now achieved. The problem was, weeks later, his emotions were none of them functioning properly. That he said he realized that he just wasn't connecting emotionally anymore. He wasn't feeling things. He'd somehow thrown a switch inside himself that to stop the occasional sense of panic that he had had just switched off his responses. And as I say, that went on for decades. And he did all sorts of things to try and deal with it. Um, That's awful. I, I'm happy to say that he dealt with it. We, you know, he, he, we talked a little bit, but he somehow sorted it out. You know, I, I hope I was helpful in that process. But um, so very early things can have a tremendous effect. Okay. Also, of course, if you've got a huge amount of money, then you, you know, I've had a guy who signed an, uh, a billion-year contract nine days after meeting it, and he would have been in virtual slavery from from the day he joined onwards. You know, the, I've talked with literally hundreds of people who were on ninety-hour week at you know five dollars a week, not allowed to see their children, bullied and bossed around, and you know, just awful. You know, there's a point. I, one little. Anecdote. There was a point where Ron Hubbard was running his film crews. He, he did some little internal films uh, in La Quinta uh, in um, on the West Coast of the US. And um, 
it, it was pretty horrifying there, you know, temperatures around 100 degrees most of the time. Uh, and they're filming and doing these things. And he decided at one point that the crew were spending too much money. Too much money was being spent on them. So he took away their allocation of toilet roll. And you get these stories from people who are there about them, you know, having to go further and further to phone boxes and cafes so they could steal the phone directories, you know, because they weren't allowed to have toilet paper. And you, you've entered a crazy world. Now, the idea that, that the little tune that the Pied Piper plays to at the beginning, you know, might have some use in it. The interesting thing is that people will take from it what they get. In talking with members directly, which is something I do only every now and then, but it, it was my daily life for many years, um, they will, they'll come out with all sorts of statements about benefit. And my answer to that is, great, it's necessary, you should. But you should also realise that it wasn't the technique they gave you alone that did this. It was you. You were the, you know, I know, Kirk, when you talk about therapy, you talk about basically helping people to help themselves, you know, and that you, you're proud of what they achieved. You don't come away going, oh, wow, I'm absolutely brilliant. Look what I did. No, I, I, I create a cult. I create a cult where people worship me and they have to give me Rolls Royces, you know, and attribute all, all the benefits to me. No, yeah, you're right. We're working on it. You probably need to grow the beard a little bit longer. Yeah. And, and work on the, you know, the New Delhi accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whatever benefit you get, it, if you talk about the concept of resilience in survivors of, you know, people who don't get post-traumatic stress disorder, despite horrific things, you can learn resilience by being in a cult group. Right. So the, the, these groups, for, from what I can gather about their process, they use techniques that are well-known to either actually be beneficial or create a pseudo, you know, spiritual experience. And, and from those uh, experiences, the, the people in control will connect a larger control schema to those experiences. And the, the, the members don't realize that, as you're saying, that you can get those experiences in a wide variety of contexts. It's just... Let, let me shoe, shoehorn you, Val, into the conversation here and his particular expert topic, which is that what you'll be given is a technique that makes you feel better. And there are even many therapists who believe that that's a good thing, something that makes you feel better. I'd like to point out cocaine, heroin, and alcohol all make people feel better. Do, does it have a long-term benefit getting high? And the point is, if you get somebody to stare at something for long enough in meditation or whatever, they will get the Gansfeld effect. The brain will start creating chatter and noise and they'll hallucinate. If you put somebody in a dark room for 10 minutes or a coffin, which is happening in South Korean businesses at the moment, that our lunch break was in a coffin. I had a fantastic experience. If you put somebody in the dark for 10 minutes, things will start moving. They'll start hearing things because the brain, the feedback is, is coming back. So it gives somebody an emotional positive experience and then 
Yuval can pick it up from there. <laughs> yeah, well, so f first of all, it's not only beneficial things sometimes. And uh, uh, it's, well, it's being put in a coffin is not a beneficial thing. <laughs> but it can, um, you, you can have. Powerful response, isn't it? Uh, um, positive. Yes, but uh, in cults, many times you see bad experiences interpreted as good uh, uh, things that happen. So if we take a look at the dynamic meditation that was, and I think in, in some version of it still done by followers of Osho, <clears throat> uh, do you guys know how, how this works? You start with 10 minutes of over-breathing. Yeah, so hyperventilation, is, the, the Groth method, which so, will freak uh, you uh, out to start with yeah they they show that it they show that in in wild world country they well, don't yeah but they don't they don't explain it yeah, so, but I'm, say, yeah, I'm saying they do show it so you can actually you know we spoiled everything in this but it's worth seeing just to see people doing the hyperventilation but, so let, let me explain what happens when, when you do this so in general uh your blood acidity is uh, uh pulled in two directions the lungs pull it towards uh, uh, the blood being more basic and the kidneys pull it towards being more acidic. And when you overbreathe, like, like they do, you know, you, you just uh, breathe too fast, too rapidly and consistently, the kidneys cannot catch up, cannot keep up with the lungs. And so what happens, the blood becomes basic and people experience a panic attack. No. So they need a lot of diazepam. Is this where we're going with it? Rajneesh <laughs> well, did this and every day so, had to take 50 milligrams. The panic attack, which is a very negative experience, and it, it, it includes, you know, numbing of the fingers and tingling and pains, and it's very, very uh, uh, not pleasant, but it is this, uh, presented as traumas leaving your body. So it's yeah. a great thing that it happened. Yeah. This it's bad good thing. you really hurt. <laughs> because now you're so much more advanced, and so people... Yeah. Um, so you start with the 10 minutes and then there's 10 minutes of screaming and uh, uh, you, you see people really uh, uh, screaming all sorts of stuff. And throwing and, throwing and, their arms around physically. Yeah, writhing, you know, lying on the floor and, and, and contorting. And, and partially that is because of the, the, the induced panic attack. Now, <laughs> after 10 minutes of that, you they do uh jumping and over breathing so the the in this uh phase they say the word who yeah. um again and again and again and <gasps> they're jumping <gasps> yeah so it's that kind of uh over breathing in that in that form and while they're doing it they're also jumping and yeah. that is very very exhausting so yeah. this is and of course this is all in a large group setting so this uh, yeah. the the crowd and the group is uh, is should not be underestimated mm -hmm. as something that you can't do this alone and it would not be the same or you could do this alone but with a group it's it's different yeah. so after 10 minutes of this jumping and over breathing they are silent completely it's pretty you know it's a, it's a strange eerie feeling mm -hmm. for 10 minutes and then they go back to dancing so uh, this uh, is a very, very uh, strong emotional experience that is induced in people. They interpret it as a good thing. But I don't think that, uh, I mean, that you can call it, you know, beneficial on its own. I think that that kind of experience can be beneficial if it is manipulated towards getting you to improve yourself because it is very, very impactful. 
but if I, I take uh, I take benefit to be what the person takes from it, and as the Sufis, if, if it's the Sufis say, most of most of what I know comes from suffering. You know, so most of what I've learned comes the benefit I've drawn. So it, it's what it, in Scientology you have this bizarre phrase occasionally used: negative gain, which is a benefit that comes from something. Um, you know the, the the horrible that's happened to you. So, for me, I'm making a particular point that if I'm talking to somebody who's experienced a group, there are people who say, "Well, it was all bad. It was all horrible. You know, you wasted your life." But it's abs- that's absolutely untrue. The camaraderie that people feel mm-hmm. in prisons, in military units, in you know, that that camaraderie is worth something. And with Scientologists, yeah, many of them come away and they go, "Yeah, but I felt good." I, I and, really and also we have to remember that sometimes you have a very, very bad experience that is actually a good memory. So, yeah. So just but, because um, they remember right. it as good, it might not have been quite as good as they remember it. But when this kind of manipulation is used to get you to quote, drop the ego, whatever that is, or work for 90 hours a week for no pay, uh, you know, be very paranoid about the, the nuclear war that's a, supposed to, happen and they're Armageddon. Gonna build, they're going to build an underground thing the the uh, uh the sannyasins and uh that well, is, well, well maranan sheila did build an underground thing and below it another <laughs> one from yeah. when she tape recorded everything that happened to yeah. what was it the peak fifteen thousand people you know unbelievable every phone was tapped so what I'm saying is that sometimes even good experiences can be manipulated into a bad effect on people, but sometimes bad experiences are interpreted as good experiences and are also can be manipulate people either or negatively or sometimes positively if it is done in a ethical, um, you know, therapeutic uh, a context, but this yeah. was not. No, and, and the technique they're using, I doubt, could ever be used in a therapeutic um, context because it's inherently dangerous. There's, you know, I'm going to rant about mindfulness at some point along the way because I am just horrified. I've had one person after another, and medical professionals, fully qualified people, recommending to my kids that they do mindfulness. And when I say, do you know what that is? They, they say, oh, yeah, they're these relaxing techniques. And I go, you know where they come from? Yeah, well, yeah, they're Buddhist. And you go, yeah, do you know which sects they come from and how we got them? And do you know what their teachers would tell you about the dangers of what you're doing? Because you're now telling somebody to use a technique which very readily induces an altered state of mind. And you're telling them to go home and do it on their own. Statistically, and the statistics been with us for decades, uh, something like 40% of people, if they sit down and stare at something without having any exercise first, get what's called, comically known as relaxation-induced anxiety. 40%. A, a, lot, you know, a large amount of people, if you just sit them down and say, stare at the wall, they'll, they'll, get, they'll feel anxious. Now, that's not very helpful, you know. What's more, there are much easier ways of relaxing than, you know, following some little handoff of Vipassana Buddhism or Soto Zen Buddhism that, you know, are techniques that 
if they are to be effective, and I'm highly dubious of you know, what I know of Tibetan and Zen monasteries, I'm afraid. Sorry. So it's, I'm being very unpopular today. That's mindfulness I've taken a shot at. Now, I'm not going to say anything. Unple- no, I'm not even going to go there. Um, but that it's, like, it's exactly what transcendental meditation was in the 60s and 70s, that practices which come from religious groups are being secularized. It's, it's happened with yoga. But with yoga, the asanas and the prana yoga, the bodily movement and the breathing yoga, they're probably okay. It's only when you get into raja yoga that you start going, what does this word yoga mean? Oh, it means the same as the word yoke. Y-O-K-E. It's what you put on oxen to plow. It's something that yokes you to God. That's what the word yoga means. Now, you can take something useful from that, that, you know, I don't know about hot, hot yoga, that sounds a bit silly, but there are useful things and you get this mixing up of what is that usefulness? You know, I think Tai Chi Chuan is a a wonderful practice. I learned how to do it, spent six months doing it and then, you know, lost it along the way later, but it was very calming. But I was also very aware that it was inducing a particular state of mind in me. So what was your criticism of the documentary? I'm curious. Me or John? Both of you. Let Yuval speak. I talk okay. far too much. Everybody knows that. Yeah. So I, I was. I, I watched... No, you don't say yes after I say that, Yuval. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, well, I was very critical of the much more than you two because I was. So well, it's 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 my fault. It's not maybe not the documentary's fault, but I was expecting something a little bit about what it's like to how many hours a day or a week did these people work? None of that. What it's like to be. The answer, uh, is, the an, the answer is 17, seven days a week. Uh, Sorry. That, there you go. And yeah. which was presented as work, presented as meditation or worship or as play. Building houses as meditation. Yeah. yeah. So um, Thousands of them. You, you see this huge construction and you don't give us, you know, five seconds of saying the people who built it worked for no lay, you know, for, for uh, um, all their time. And it, it's, it was. Um, but we uh, gave them a decent burial. <laughs> so I was, the, throughout the documentary, I was waiting for a little bit of what it's like to be uh, one of yeah. them, what it's like to, uh, what were the punishments if you did something wrong, what, you know, what happens to people who are, yeah, you know, all, all sorts of, of, of the daily life as a sannyasin, how do people join, what, you know, the, the four questions that John mentioned earlier, and so throughout the documentary, I'm continuously frustrated that I get none of that. <laughs> and oh, I, I li- they literally could have given me, you know, two minutes, 120 seconds of someone describing a day in the life of a sannyas and how many hours of work, what, kind, what the dynamic meditation is, is like. Um, As just said, a little we, bit. We, and I would, have, only, I would have had a much the, better experience. It's true. I'm sorry. The, we only saw the aristocracy. Yeah, completely the aristocracy. And any it of made it look like a good thing. It yeah, made it look that, like, uh, you know... It, which it, is my other complaint, that some people might be attracted completely. to it by watching this thing, which is why I say again, with a 
living master, everything works. With a dead master, nothing works. He's dead, guys. Why do you think the documentary people depicted it that way? Uh, so it could be out of uh, uh, you know laziness. It could be out of not wanting to um, uh, uh, insult. They wanted the people who participated in the documentary to like the documentary. And I think that if they would have been openly critical of it, if they would have talked about people who committed suicide, because I, I know someone whose sister joined the, the Osho and then committed suicide and she's, hates them and she's very devastated by it. But I think that all those people who are still today are, as, as John mentioned, the, the lawyer, I think that if they would have seen this documentary and it would have been uh, critical of the cult, uh, uh, they would have been very, they would have felt that they were taking advantage of. Maybe they only participated because they were uh, given assurances that, they, that, that or, or I mean, I, I don't know. There, there could be many reasons, uh, but it could be just out of, you know, lack of curiosity. What I think it was, was they were trying to make a compelling narrative of two sides of the same coin. They, I think if they included all that stuff, the, the documentary would have been decidedly, the, the audience would have been decidedly anti-Rajneesh, right? which I think is the way the audience should be. So. Right, but the documentary, and which is common to popular documentaries of today, they try to present a story that bounces you back and forth in terms of your sympathies because it makes yep. it more interesting that way. If, if it's just a documentary, like making a documentary about Hitler or something, you know, there's no, you're not going to be like, oh, I have sympathy for Hitler or anything. But, he was a vegetarian. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the news is like that as well. The news is all about false equivalency, and we're we're going to give you both sides, and then you know, yeah, uh, first, even first when animal, there are no two animal, sides. What? First animal rights laws, Hitler. Yeah. First man to first politician to observe that tobacco smoking caused lung cancer, but they didn't. They didn't show the conflict. They didn't show the tension, which is what we normally do respond to in um, dramas and documentaries. They squeezed it into this place and. It was interesting that you used the word bigoted when, when you talked about the residents of Antelope. Yeah, I did. Bigoted. I think that was a slant to the documentary. As I came to know those people and realize what they were talking about, you know, they, they, they were presented as rednecks. Right. You started getting these rich stories out of them, and you then started getting this, yeah, you know, we, we wanted to be friends with them. We, we did everything we could. And then these people spent four years... You know, you get to the point where the, the town you live is now run by this group. They they own the town council. You've got one member left, right? They've got like nine people on the town council. So they decide to have a police force patrolling 24 hours a day with assault weapons <laughs> dressed up in stupid pretend military uniforms, you know, like with pink patches on or what have you. And they're standing around outside your door. And one of the residents was saying, you know, at night they'd be driving up and down the street with the lights, you know, the wigwags going and, and the sirens going. Um, so isn't it interesting, don't you think, reflecting on it, Kirk, the use of the word bigoted? 
the usage of that word, I was uh, referring to the initial reaction that was depicted in the documentary yeah. prior to and, all of and the... And that's exactly why it's the right word to use, because that's how they came over. But it's not how they were, okay. as the documentary showed. So I felt there was a slant that sort of bathed. It was like it was an ex-member who was going, oh, this was a great time of my life. And I want to remember it this way. And so it's like a beautiful movie with sunsets um, that should be apocalypse now. That the tension that actually existed, yes, the suicide rate was was high. Um, the same with Scientology. It, it, when I checked, it was running three, four, five, six times higher per hundred thousand than is normal. By boasting far many more members than they've ever had, they make it look insignificant. But um, the the amount of killers who have come out of such groups, people like Charles Manson, 150 hours of Scientology, which he said, um, gave him the confidence to become a leader. Right. So I want to I want to close with one question. Why would well, I guess two questions. Why would people join? such a thing and stay in the Rajneesh uh, cult and to why would the leaders do what they did? Well, uh, the, fir the first question, everything seems so bizarre, you know, it is. Yuval is exactly yeah. the man to answer the question about how did the change in the person come about that, that they became committed and with Prem Niran still, a highly intelligent trial attorney, successful before he joined them, highly intelligent and, and seemingly a charming man, a man you'd like to sit and talk with. But he's still totally buzzed out on the idea that this man who he called Bhagwan, I used that word with a Hindu friend a few years ago, and I got such a look of shock. She said, Bhagwan? Well, she didn't say it, actually. She just, her face said it. How dare I say supreme God? Uh, what a thing to call you, yeah. speaking of narcissistic personality. But how people become involved, Yuval knows yeah. a lot. So, well, it's, it's the, the, there's a number of techniques. For example, as, as I, I mentioned, the, the dynamic meditation, which was done every day, and yeah. also the, the, the effect of the crowd. That, that makes can, you high. That can make you uh, uh, have a very, very strong a life-changing experience and that you feel, can you feel awe in in Yuval's you, terms you feel awe. you feel yeah or, or one of the emotions connected wonder to, yeah wonder sublime you know mystery sublimity and, and uh, uh the experience can is the experience of the really real it's not the ordinary real and you feel people profoundly feel, real yeah people feel that um it, uh, that the they saw things as they really are, and from the now on, in, the colors in the room are brighter. The colors in the room are brighter. That's and, an actual Scientology one, and one known to all hypnotists. The uh -huh. sudden heightening of awareness. Wow, I'm in reality at last. <laughs> it's like in in uh, the Wizard of Oz, where it goes from black and white to color. You can so, you can have that experience, and that is a benefit the problem is where it goes <laughs> in, in my in my my research and, and in my my book that i'm writing right now i uh connect the this kind of experience the sudden conversion experience and there's also slow conversion so i'm not saying that this is necessary but 
that this experience, I think, is related uh, psychologically to the experience of becoming a parent, which is an experience that can be very short. It's experience that can change your life drastically. It is an experience that creates a commitment that is not based on cost-benefit consideration. It gives you a sense of meaning. It's, uh, uh, and it allows you to change your life fundamentally. So when you have a baby, you can change your life fundamentally. And when you undergo this kind of a conversion, ecstatic conversion experience, you can change your life drastically. And the... Um, the way to induce, there's a, a lot of ways to induce these kinds of experiences through various, various uh, manipulations. The, the Repetition, fixation, mimicry. Uh, um, for, for and, and, uh, so the, the use of the crowd, the use of, of exhaustion. And I, I, I have just this great quote from uh, Osho or at the time. Oh, we've, been, we've been waiting. We've yeah. been waiting. You told this us about is, uh, a quote from Margaret uh, Singer, who uh, uh, this is from a, a book uh, she wrote, an uh, excellent book called Cults in Our Midst yeah. from 2003. Um, and she, uh, uh, this is a quote from her, and there'll be his quote will be in there. Uh, so this is about confusion techniques used by, by Bhagwan. And um, it happens in the initiation ceremony in which uh, he gave each disciple a new name, so, by the way, name-changing uh, 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 rituals are also very, very, can, can very affect people. Yeah, have an identity much. change that starts yeah. with the name. Uh, or you can be given a rank, of course. And, and you're changed, uh, you change your clothing, right? So you get a new name, and now you start only wearing orange and then plum-colored clothing, and you wear a necklace. And on the necklace, there's a picture of Osho. And, Just um, in case you forget what he looks like. <laughs> yes. And this is what you're told when you're uh, given this, this necklace. Uh, and, and this is what, what Osho would tell you. First, the picture is not mine. The picture only appears to be mine. Yes. No picture of me is really possible. The moment one knows oneself, one knows something that cannot be depicted, framed. I exist as an emptiness that cannot be pictured that cannot be photographed. That is why I could put the picture there. The more you know the picture, <laughs> the more you concentrate on it, the more you come in tune with it, the more you will feel what I am saying. The more you concentrate on it, so the true. more there will not be a picture there. So <laughs> this is a, a given by Singer as an example of confusion that is used to make you feel as if... So, if you have the feeling of knowing, right? You feel you had a very strong experience. You feel that this person is, knows everything. He knows about reality. And then he gives you a text like that. It's mm -hmm. hard to make, to, to feel that that is true. And so the, <clears throat> this is yet another in a long list of, of manipulative techniques. And of course, the sexual, having sex with strangers can also which, uh, from, from my understanding, and, and many times within the, the cult, especially in India, you were not allowed to refuse sex with anybody else. Any, I believe that um, was still the case in Oregon, according to one of the statements yeah. in Wild Wild Country. Yes. And, but, and they had pictures of themselves taken naked, dancing around, having orgies. Um, 
but also they say that the in Oregon they were way too exhausted to from construction and overwork and lack of sleep to have too much sex. Well, and see um, how few few babies were born in that community. That's a bit mm -hmm. weird. But then Rajneesh said we will be the world's first AIDS-free community, and he issued um, not only condoms but rubber gloves. And from from what I heard is that they would uh, you could be punished. You could be punished by uh, uh, giving you AIDS, which at the time was was of course very lethal. That's so, not a very, that's a that's not good. Yeah, and um, and yeah, sorry, do go ahead. So when you when you say why do people uh, join, I think that many times uh, people are um, they're they're given. Um, so w when you have this kind of experience, right, you, you see a miracle you, or, or something like that, you have a very strong experience and that experience can prove almost anything because the, the, the experience does not need to be connected to what is in included from an inexplicable event. We've said, yes. Yeah. So you see a miracle and you come to conclusions but, but, that are not related to the miracle, but it's not necessarily a miracle. It, it's something yeah, yeah. You what can, you consider to be, a miracle. You, can see a, you can see a Yuri Geller or, some yeah. conjurer doing something, or you with a couple of rubber bands around your fingers. Um, you can see that thing, and you can't explain it. And it, it's rather like Milton Erickson's moment of confusion. That yes. hypnosis is something that slips in at the moment when you, you can't quite make sense of things. So, it, uh, um, so the, the, when, when you go to, to an ashram, like, you know, like uh, an Osho meditation retreat that they still have today, and um, you, uh, the, the person who will be recruited does not think that, that, that Osho is supreme God, right? They think that everybody else thinks this, but I don't think it. But what is established is that if you do experience a miracle now, in this context, you will come to the conclusion that Osho is God. Yeah. If and you if would the, have had the, the same experience in a church, you might have turned into a Christian, in a mosque, you might have turned into a Muslim. It depends but, on the context of, of yeah, the experience. So it's not very hard to get people to the point where they are in the... the, the, the um, they, if they experience what they consider to be a miracle now, then that would prove to them that the cult is correct. And um, and then they they don't know that if you overbreathe and scream, this is what more, You must have yeah. a very very strong experience yeah. that you can interpret. Especially be... if somebody has sex with you immediately afterwards. <laughs> yes, um, not just someone, a group of people. Oh so... God, <laughs> a savage group of people who might break your arms and legs if you're not careful. You know, just to keep things on edge. You know. Uh, and then after that, there's all, you know, uh, uh, dissonance avoidance becomes a, a, a part of it. There's a lot of other kinds of manipulations. But I think that the this, this strong, very strong uh, initial conversion experiences that are induced by, in this case, I think mostly through this, this dynamic meditation. But, mm -hmm. um, and confusion and change of identity and change of name and change of clothing and... and um, and habits, uh, it, it, all, it, it all gets to, to really uh, be very, very strong, manipulative, um, uh, uh, you know, it's hard for people to resist that onslaught of manipulation. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The uh, way you laid it out, I think, uh, you know, really makes logical sense. Why do you think the leaders did this sort of thing? Just before going to that, it creates, as Yuval says it elsewhere, it creates a feedback loop where somebody is wanting to get that euphoria they felt when they first did a technique. Now, the second time you do the technique, you won't ever get as much out of it. I interviewed people who'd spent 15, 20 years, even 30 years, trying to get that feeling. And it wasn't something they necessarily felt when they first met Scientology or the Krishnas or the Rajneeshis or the Moonies or what have you. But somewhere early on, pretty early on, they had an experience and they they were chasing it. And it started make, making me sort of compare this to drug addiction, you know, which is, mm-hmm. you know, slightly invidious perhaps. But it it was like exactly this thing of I've got to get my next fix. And I started you know, thinking back over Scientology and going, there were people who they'd go in, they'd be euphoric. The outcome of Scientology is very good indicators. You let out of your session to write your success story after you've had very good indicators. That means grinning to the rest of us. That means euphoria. So you've got somebody in that state and you've measured it on a little lie detector and Ron Hubbard did call it a lie detector. Um, contrary to certain sociologists, um, it tells you that you're in this euphoric state. You go and do this thing. And then within three days, that's my usual experience of it, it'll collapse for most people. Some people can maintain this infatuation for months, but I didn't meet many of them in cults. They're the people you expect to meet, the kind of glassy-eyed people, you know, um, but people, you know, they could do what they did and they could get on with their lives and they could incorporate this into their very being. And um, highly intelligent people, I knew eight medical doctors in the UK who were in Scientology, the PhD cult of Rajesh. People become invested in the pursuit of an experience. And, you know, perhaps the thing that, that's got me most about you know, talking with you, Val, about his ideas over the last several years, I've had that good fortune, is the way that this feedback loop functions, that we want to be infatuated. We love to be infatuated. And so we're looking for this thrill, this pleasure, this thing to have. And certain rituals comfort us. And we, you know, we're able to induce a state by having the right kind of incense. So let me describe the feedback loop. The feedback loop is when you have... Uh, for example, an awe experience of, of some kind, which either proves or re, re, uh, re, reassures you that a certain something is correct, right? So let's say you have an experience that proves to you that Osho is God, right? Is supreme God. And um, because of the experience proving the ideas, your, uh, those ideas make you behave in a way that brings about more experiences. Yeah. So that is the feedback loop. So you, you do a ritual meditation in the morning that proves to you that, there, that it all works. And then because of that, you will do it the next day as well. Yeah. And all based in a sense of certainty, a sureness yeah. that this is right. This, this is, is right. really real. It's not yeah. just certainty. It's special certainty. 
I tell the same story every time I spent two hours when I was 17 being evangelized by a born-again Christian. And at the end, he walked away from me backwards. He backed away from me. I wasn't being unpleasant to him. I was just saying, oh, but where does he say he's the son of God? And, you know, unpleasant things like that, because he doesn't at any point, in fact. Um, and he backs away from me and he looks at me, keeping me at a distance. He says, I don't understand the Bible, but I know that it's all true. Yeah. That and is of course, the kind of and we all have that kind of certainty in our lives. It's this is not something that weirdos have. This is how we live. We believe in the things we believe in with passion and conviction, if we are to be human. So, but being willing to investigate our sense of certainty and say, do I really have any evidence, you know, that prunes will lead to me living an eternal life or what have you what is the evidence for the health benefit of prunes or, or whatever the thing one is devoted to is that seems to be suspended in the mix the desire to get the buzz takes over from the hey this is ruining your life you know yeah and of course it comes with a lot of blind spots so yeah. which again this... we, we all have we all have, but... Yeah. You um, can't become enlightened and get rid of them, folks. Sorry. But in the case of infatuated, uh, romantic uh, infatuation or the uh, fervor, which, which is sort of, sort of a, a different kind of infatuation, the, the blind spots can be very, very uh, uh, problematic and very dangerous. So people yeah. can, can stay in horrific situations that everybody around them sees that are really bad and yet they don't do not. Well, you can get a, a famous heart surgeon who starts murdering people because um, Osahara of Amshinrikyo tells him to. Mm -hmm. But it, a man who saved hundreds, maybe thousands of lives becomes a murderer. Yeah, using the as tools part of, of his... cult involvement. Now, yeah. there, there was the, quest, the second question that Kirk asked about yep the leadership and why they did. And I think that it's, it's unclear where, uh, how much blame should go to Sheila and how much to, to Osho. And it's unclear who's manipulating who. I think that in many times, as, as John correctly understood there, you have an empath psychopath dynamic where the, you, you, you get a weaponized empath where the empath mm -hmm. wants to, uh, uh, because they are, they're such good hearted. They want to do what the psychopath tells them and, and really do it well, even if it's a horrific uh, behavior. But in this case, it's not clear whether Sheila is that, that, uh, in that role or not. It seems yeah. like she is, uh, yeah, go ahead, John, you. The, the reversal at the end, and I'm not going to spoil it for people. It's in the last episode where you find out what Maranan Sheila does now and has been doing for, some years now um and i think that totally transformed my view of her i've read about her there's a very good documentary called my dance is now complete about the big muddy ranch in oregon and uh, so how, how about we spoil we do spoil it and give a spoiler warning and, and well it's just no it's just to say that her behavior now with the rest of them mm -hmm. I, I really liked um Marsh Auntie B, Jane Stork as she is now, uh, perhaps because she, for some reason, she really reminded me of my friend Hannah Whitfield. Mm -hmm. <laughs> She's Australian. Hannah is from um, Africa, from Zimbabwe. Um, but they're both very gentle in the way they speak, you know. 
something quite very charming about it. Her story that, that you're getting this story where she's saying, "Look, I I tried to kill somebody. I was the assassin." You know, because she could, when they they taught them all how to use weapons, which is an aspect of all great religions, I think, um, that she was the best shot. So they they just came. Mark Sheila came up to her and said, "Right, you can kill people for us." Obviously, you know, and had her try to kill um, the doctor, as I said before. Her journey, yeah, and she does have a book out, by the way. Uh, <laughs> her, her, her story really touched me, that she was somebody who'd taken, she'd, she'd been pushed to do something that had completely freaked her out. In the end, she went back to the US and stood trial. Um, because she needed to see one of her own children who was um, terminal in another country, um, in Australia, I think. And again, that's a story that shouldn't be spoiled, what happened to her at trial. It's a beautiful thing, I I think. But she realised it had been an enchantment. She realised it had been a spell. And I think we perhaps need to connect back to these traditional ways of looking at this, but say the magic is voodoo. The the magic is suggestion. The magic is compliance. The magic is, it's not that, you know, uh, Satan does come down to earth and dance with you. It's that you've put yourself into such a stupefied state that you believe that that's what's happened. But the magic is, is out there. It's an enchantment. I spent nine years in a group and I was never a core member. I lived at the outside of it and I had a perfectly good time. And uh, I wasn't brainwashed. I I wasn't subjected to a zombie-like state at any point. I wasn't abused or humiliated. Uh, So I'm quite unusual in my experience of so-called cult members. But the worst thing is that for nine years, despite seeing from the start that the organisation was misrun and silly in many aspects, you know, marching around in sailor suits with jack boots on, you know, come on. Um, the amount of money they set about extracting from people, you know, just unbelievable uh, events. But for nine years, I believed in it. I didn't do anything that I feel guilty or ashamed about because I was on the outside and I just got lucky that way. Um, I didn't harass anybody. I barely gave any of their so-called auditing because I wanted to learn how to do it, to understand it, not to make it my profession. And I went to art college and did that while I was doing it. So I had a life of Riley, really. But I continued to believe in it. And that, to this day, is the thing that fascinates me, that... Did, did you have what you say that you had willful ignorance regarding some of the problems? No, I, I was well aware of them. I talked about them. I read critical books. Mm-hmm. I complained about anything that bothered me. Um, I never wrote nasty little chits on people to attack them or any of that stuff. I, I was, I believed in ethics. I believed in acting um, in a loving way to all people, towards all people. You know, because I used to be a hippie, right? <laughs> it's all right. I'm over it now, guys. I hate everyone. Now. I just can't stand anybody. Um, but I, I really, you know, was was part of it. What interests me is, yeah, I read three books that criticised it. Um, I talked with anybody about anything they wanted to know. I 
you know, then of course did the secret levels after I'd been in for seven years and my faith began to wane, you know, it's like, Oh no, I'm full of little devils. Oh no. You know, where have I heard this before? Um, but how is it that, and I think for anybody, you construct reality and all of our realities are a theater are constructed. Every one of us is, you know, the other people in the world are characters within our minds. That doesn't mean they don't have independent motion as the psychopath comes to believe and they're just, you know, it's a solipsistic universe um, where we're just imagination. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that what we experience of the world is what we experience in the theatre of our minds. And that's a place that is not like the outside world and it doesn't function necessarily along lines of reason and logic. It, it, we do function more along lines of desire and appetite more than we like to think, not in a Freudian way, not that we want to kill it or mate with it, um, but, but in, a, in an every way that, that we, you know, the pleasure principle, we want to enjoy things. So John, if you had had more of a awe experience, do you think that would have sustained you no, I did have, but you see, the thing is, I did have an awe experience frequently. Whenever I came out of an auditing session, I felt high. Whenever I went into an auditing session, I felt high that I was going into it as well, which is why my auditing sessions were generally only about 10 minutes long. And I had a very small amount of auditing compared to most people. I had less than Charles Manson, for example, in my nine years, just to give you some map of how it transformed but Hubbard did say Scientology leads to success in any walk of life. And this certainly applied to Charles Manson, <laughs> unfortunately. you know, Because um, he said he was a cowering wimp before he had. Well, wh- what do you think the difference was between you and people who sustain their belief in Scientology beyond those years? Luck. I thought, yeah, I, mainly luck. Yeah, I thought you were going to say, what's the difference between you and Charles Manson for a minute? <laughs> It's just one of those moments. It, it is. Um, but uh, I, people transform at different rates. I, I left and, and came to go, I don't believe this anymore. I don't feel the need to destroy anybody else's belief. Um, but but here you, some... you also didn't join the Sea Org. You also didn't, you yeah. didn't get abu- abused partially because you were lucky. No, well, I didn't get abused for a very simple reason, which is that Scientology has very strict policy about celebrities. And L. Ron Hubbard, bless his cotton socks, decided that anybody who was a writer, an artist, or a musician was a celebrity. And so even though, and I was all three of those things, um, and I suppose I still am now, come think about it, um, it doesn't go away, you know. Um, they treated me as a celebrity that I never heard what's called a severe reality adjustment until the last year I was involved. And I was hired as senior Scientology executive, which is tell what that is. That is when someone screams at you. I'm going going to, I'm going to a severe reality adjustment and SRA. Um, I'd never even heard the term. Um, One day this guy worked for me. He took my, my wife who was, selling paintings she hadn't sold anything that week so her stats were down took her into this tiny little room 
probably stood about three inches away from her and shouted at her. And I heard him shouting. He said, you know, you're a suppressive. You're trying to destroy John. And I just stood there. I, was, I, I didn't know what was going on because I'd ne- I didn't know that this was a daily occurrence for sea organization members. Uh, and indeed, when I finally got the courage up to sit this guy down and say, what on earth were you doing there? You know, I, that's, you know that doesn't work for me. Um, he said, I said, it's not written down anywhere. Where does this come from? Show me the policy, you know, that shows you you're meant to do this. He's, and he started crying and his head in his hands. And he said, uh, Hubbard did it to us on the ship. And he'd been a Hubbard assistant for years. He was somebody who'd been around and about Hubbard over several years in his company. You know, um, He'd smuggled money for him. You know, He'd done all sorts of things for him that people around him did. Um, to maintain the most ethical being who ever lived. Um, and he said, he just did it all the time. And I, I then, that was while I was still a member, then I had the chance to interview in detail over 100, but I've had conversations with well, over 1,000 Scientologists. And among them, there are many people who, who worked with Hubbard, and all of them report the tantrums. All of them report he would just burn somebody to the ground and i say three inches away really three inches away from their faces spitting into their faces you should also say that he, his teeth were rotting in his head so he smelled really bad it's like being enveloped in a cloud of sulfurous gas um which may have been the effect he was seeking in life you know but uh, and that people who've seen that can then come away from that and go in fact, one guy described one to me the first time he met Hubbard. Hubbard did this to him. You effing this, you, you know, he's did about seven swear words per, cuss words per sentence. Um, and as the guy told me the story, I could see that he was going into a kind of bliss state. <laughs> he's telling me how he first met Hubbard and Hubbard called him a effing blinding this, that and the other. At the top of his voice in front of a whole group of people and he's just going, wow, he's wonderful. And he was still doing that five years later when I talked to him about it. It sounds like a pimp and you know sex worker relationship in some way. Exactly, exactly, exactly. That is one end of it. Exactly. Or, or, or an abusive relationship. And any abusive relationship between people magnifies out into the group where you have this learned helplessness, this kind of Stockholm syndrome, I didn't experience that. But the thing that freaks me out is I didn't know that anybody else was. Everybody I met in nine years, without one exception, without a single exception, gave me the impression they liked being in Scientology. You know, nobody, yeah, but, I, then but I started then, then hearing again. about the Rehabilitation Project Force. And you got that there was this front of, you know, like the Catholic Church covering up child sexual abuse because hey, we're protecting the church, you know? And, and also, and we'll this, is a group, this is a group, yeah, that, that uh, uh, treats doubt as treason. Yes. So if you, if you doubt, you are, you are treasonous. Yeah. And, and I, 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 wouldn't, uh, I would assume that's how it is in, in Osho's group was, uh, as well, but I, I don't know. And, and indeed, in Scientology, if you say anything negative about the group to another member, it is technically what's called a high crime. 
which is apparently the worst kind of crime you can commit in Scientology's ethics. So if you say, I think Ron Hubbard's fat, and that is a truth, by the way, he was fat, you know, let's, let's be honest about it. And he aged incredibly quickly, you know, incredibly quickly, he just went seedy, you know. Um, but that was because he was working so hard on the technology that it was having devastating effects on his body, apparently. Well, it's been a, it, we got to adjourn. Uh, it's been a fascinating. I have more questions about that, but uh, but yeah. So, uh, what would you two like to plug for people to go to if they want to learn more about the two of you? Oh, um, well, I wouldn't go to I wouldn't go to Scientology scandal sheets about me. <laughs> no, they're quite interesting too. Yeah, I John wrote a number of books that that I think uh, should be uh, should should you know uh, that I should plug because he would be too yeah. humble. To plug oh, yeah. himself. Um, I'm extremely humble, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, oh, I will oh, have I a just... book. I will have a book out in the future, but some people might be hearing this in the future. So, oh but no, it might already be out. We're traveling in time already. Yeah. Isn't that good? What the, you have a working title, don't you, Yuval? Um, yeah, c- currently it might be the awe-inspired primate or something of that. Uh, we we tried. I tried for spiritual primate for a while. Um, but maybe it'll, it'll, Yuval's, you know, expert on evolutionary theory. And so he understands that the title is evolving still at the moment. Ah, and there may be an exaptation at some point that, that works. Yeah. But, um, what about, what about you, John? What would you, your open minds? Or he was just going to give you a list of all 15 books. (laughs) Ah, because I'm too humble to do it. Um, my book, a big book about Scientology is um, Let's Sell Them a Piece of Blue Sky, which were Ron Hubbard's first words to the guy who opened the doors at his first foundation just before that moment. Let's sell these people a piece of blue sky. That's a fairly... What, is it, what's it like, Yuval? Is it, is it any good? It's very good. I see. It's very it's, good. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I gave him five pounds before. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's great. And, and I, I liked it a lot before I ever met you. When I met John, he induced awe in me because of how much I liked the book. Ah. Yeah, because I'm, I'm a celebrity. He was a celebrity. Yeah, I'm a celebrity. There's a short book for not, you know, Blue Sky was really written to un, undo it for people who've been involved, but thankfully other people have liked it too. But there's a very short book called Scientology, The Cult of Greed, which is um, recent and, and basically is to explain it to somebody who's had no involvement just by throwing them into the, the amazing uh, statements that uh, Elwin Hubbard made about such things as how great it is to do hard selling and how you should harass people and ruin them utterly if possible. Um, outside of that, I've written a couple of novels. We've talked before about Seattle. I wrote a, a novel uh, called Voodoo Child's Slight Return, which brings Jimi Hendrix back to life. Would that there were the magic in the world to do that. Uh, and makes him a character in this hopefully amusing thriller. Um, I've had another novel called Halcyon Days, that's D-A-Z-E, about a psychedelic rock group that emerges from an art college in 1967 in Britain. And that's quite strange. So with Jimmy... Trans- Jimi Hendrix, does he come to life in Seattle? Does Because I've been to his grave. No, no, oh. don't worry. I'm, I'm not going to set him loose on you there. <laughs> no, he, he comes back to England. Ah. Um, the, the country that, that allowed him to be great. Yeah. That's, that's accepted. Um, and becomes, I, it's got 
Cherokee stuff in it because he was one eighth Cherokee. So I, I read about that. It's got a lot about him. I read 14 biographies of Hendrix. And when it was reviewed by this guy, it's something called the International Jimi Hendrix Museum or something. He said um, he said he absolutely hated the book because it's got all this you know, Chinese mysticism. There are about four quotes from Lao Tzu in it, I think. Oh, but, but it's a story. But he didn't fault me on a single statement about the biography. And it, the biography, you know, that he, you, you know he was a paratrooper. Most people didn't know that he was in the 101st Airborne, the Screaming Eagles. Most people don't know that he hated it, but he was there. And that's when he started playing in bands and went through, you know, Ike and Tina Turner's band, the Isley Brothers, played with Little Richard, all of that stuff, but just as a sideman and couldn't get anywhere. And then that beautiful thing exploded on the world. I wanted to tell us stories that people don't know about him, um, that I think he was, I started working on it and I thought he was just a brilliant musician. He was a phenomenal genius musician with some strange ideas. And I came to believe that he was both of those things, but he was also very intelligent, very perceptive. I was surprised the more I read about him. Um, and it allowed me to listen to, you know, every available little odd bootleg of Hendrix for about two years while I was writing it. Um, but yeah, there's Halcyon Days. There's uh, my personal transliteration of the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. And probably most importantly to people who are interested in the psychological aspects, there's Opening Minds, um, which is going through a new subtitle in the press at the moment, but it, it's, uh, it's about undue influence, manipulation, and what people call brainwashing. And um, uh, come on, Yuval, tell them it's very good. It is very good. There you go. Yeah. See, that was another five pounds. That cost me. <laughs> are you a guitarist, John? I know we've talked about this before. He's a drummer. Oh, no. a drummer. Yeah, I, I actually earned a meager living in my teens for about 18 months as a drummer, and I still play. And but, he was considered but, to be a drummer for Judas Priest, but didn't, didn't work out. Really? No, luckily for me. Oh, my God. Like in the early days or when they were changing when they, drummers? When they formed, they, they called me up and asked if, if, if I'd like to come and play for them. And I said, uh, I'm sorry, I've got a gig at the moment, but here's this guy, Fred Heath, I think his name was Fred somebody, and uh, ask him. And then I, a week or two later, they called me and, I, you know, yeah, I'd, I'd got the time. So, you know, I wasn't in a band anymore. That was how quickly the turnover worked. Um, and I went to the audition and they'd got this guy, Fred, sat there and he said, I can't do the job, but I'll come and help you find a good drummer. So I got judged by the guy that I had recommended, which I thought was a bit, but we played, um, played something. And at the end of it, they told me it had been Joe Cocker's version of a little help from my friends. And uh, it would have been helpful if they told me that at the beginning. Because was, that, was it like a punk metal version of it? Or were they trying to replicate that, that song? They, they certainly didn't come anywhere close to replicating it. I had no idea what they were playing and, and my ear is not that bad. Um, but but it, I don't think it would have worked out, you know, the Satanism. I know some people enjoy that and it's a religion after all. And we should respect religions, I'm told. So just because people sacrifice things to their gods doesn't mean they're bad people. 
just like that to be my my message so yeah uh opening minds is um to get back to the promo piece it is a, a book about how the same dynamics and the same psychology function throughout human society the cult psychology is fundamental it's in as soon as you get a group of people together they'll start doing it you know um it's then a matter of how they work that out and whether they make a good cult or a bad cult out of it but but we are susceptible to so many things and i want people to have the tools to you know to prevent you know i've i've met people so many people whose lives were wrecked people who were you know they graduated you know from university with wonderful degrees they got into a career they got things going and then it was tipped over for them you know in the celebrity field the incredible string band in the 60s sold more albums than the rolling stones then they joined scientology and uh, you know it 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 happens to people they'll have this experience and spend have to spend a lifetime as ma uh, shanti b does jane stork uh, does going what happened to me you know uh and somewhere around about the age of 73 they they kind of go i've no idea and they stop wasting their time to work you know trying to work no m- many people have been i shouldn't make light of it many people have been very severely affected what if we could teach adolescents about fundamental principles like learned helplessness simple things and you know with uvals help teach them about infatuation and that it's something they've just learned how to do it's the marker of adolescence you know, i love it you know yeah. um that we can actually teach these things and that's what the open minds foundation is there for um and it's a free information service you know translate it give it to people get people to read it because what horrifies me is if i'd read just 10 pages of just 10 pages of the website we have before i'd met oren hubbard's agents i would never have joined scientology there's no way because to detect it is so obvious at the moment i'm reviewing an al-qaeda um manual on um how to recruit people and it's shocking then you go and read um the fbi's chief interrogators hostage negotiator i should say is thing the same techniques wherever you look you know ron hubbard described them but there are certain ways of bypassing reasoning in people and taking them over and for the sake of our friends we all need to learn those things because when the time comes that they come and along and say i just met this incredible guy and i've decided to give him all my money and i've signed a contract for what did it say a, a thousand million years you know when somebody comes and does that you'll know what to do or when your friends get into a or your kids get into a relationship with somebody who's toxic to them who's predatory towards them or you know con men and all of that the tricks and traps politicians they politicians i'm i'm starting to put an r into the word to put insert the word trick into the middle of it so many of them so many of them are so astonishingly insincere so much fake news so much cyberbullying so, so so many elements that are to do with a nasty predatory kind of psychology which our society tends to breed so 
that's a big book about it's actually it's quite a small book about that but um yeah i think it's so wonderful i we've talked about that before john but i'm reminded of that idea of how wonderful would it be if we were to educate our young people or everybody actually on what this is that i'm reminded of one area that actually does openly talk about this and that's in the polyamorous community they talk about new relationship energy and uh, because you know the polyamorous community you have a partner and then uh, for you know 10 years and then you meet a new person and you have what they call new relationship energy we might call it infatuation or falling in love or something Mm -hmm. and what they uh, they all label it as a community you know it's new relationship energy meaning put it in context it's it it changes how you think it changes your perspective but it'll fade over time and you don't want to make decisions while you're having that based on without being a little bit questioning as to whether or not those motivations will sustain themselves over time and um but yeah if we had uh, more talk about that how many people in from various contexts could could we save them and really make our society a better place but anyway uh great uh, talking with you as always john and you all uh as i was watching the documentary i was curious what the two of you thought and uh you know talking with you today i've i've learned a lot about that and it's given me a just a much richer understanding they should have interviewed the two of you for the pot for the uh, documentary, honestly, because I, I do bar mitzvahs as things. well. Yeah. What, what was that? I do bar mitzvahs as well and weddings. <laughs> yeah. So uh, thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.